The following message was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul writing this to a church that he planted and pastored and then left while he was gone. Absent from the ones that he loved so much, he wrote this, verse 15 in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you, they were Christians, they were born again, they were saved. So they were one spiritually with Paul. They were brothers in the Lord. And because of this reason, and because of your love for all the saints or other believers, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Remember, he was their pastor. Verse 16. I do not cease giving thanks. He's talking about praying. I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul prayed regularly and fervently for his people, Christians. And the content of his prayer specifically is thanks. And in addition to praying, to God with thanksgiving on behalf of those saints, he prayed something very, very specific in verse 17. He also prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you, Christian, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's what Paul prayed. Paul prayed regularly, fervently for Christians that they would grow in their understanding and knowledge of who God is. Because he knew that knowing God, who God truly is, knowing God intimately and deeply, and also knowing what God has done and accomplished and how He works in the lives of believers, knowing God was foundational to everything else in life. It starts there. Knowing God. It's the greatest priority. Everybody believes in God. Everybody in the world believes in God. Some God. But the minority believe the right thing about who God is and what He has done. You don't need to turn there, but listen to John 17 about knowing God and what a priority it was. Jesus, in His last prayer before His death, He's praying to the Father. And Jesus said this in verse 3 of John 17, And this is eternal life. This is the very definition of what eternal life is from Jesus' own lips. What is eternal life? The essence of eternal life. Of knowing God. Being saved. What is it? That they may know You, Father. That is eternal life. Knowing God the Father. The Creator of the universe. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. That's eternal life. It is foundational. Knowing God. Knowing Him accurately. Knowing Him according to Scripture. And knowing what He has done on our behalf. And knowing how He works in our lives on a regular basis. Knowing God. The absolute foundation for healthy, stable, spiritual life. And that's why I embarked on a series three weeks ago on the forgotten fundamentals. Things, doctrines that are so important and foundational and really the pillars of Christian faith that are routinely neglected in this day and age. In this generation, really. But they're rock bed to everything. And so I started out with the most important thing, and that was knowing the true God of the universe. Knowing who God is. Who is this God of the Bible that we say and profess that we believe in? 
We start out saying, focusing on the Father and also His triune nature. That First and foremost, the God of the Bible is a triune God. And then last week we looked at uh, the second person of the Trinity is Jesus Christ who was God and became a man. Jesus is God. And today we have the privilege of looking at the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So that's our study today, the person of the Holy Spirit. And the title I put, the person of the Holy Spirit, I wanted to emphasize the word person. Because just about every religion in the world has some view of a Holy Spirit. They believe in some kind of spirit, Spirit of God or Holy Spirit or whatever they want to call it. But most religions in the world deny that the Holy Spirit is a person. And we're going to see that that is an absolute essential regarding the very nature of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. So let's go ahead and look at the person of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture. Seven things I want to highlight. Kind of a survey and overview of the Holy Spirit of God. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit, if you will. In kind of a Bible study-like fashion, I made a kind of a comprehensive outline for you. We're not going to necessarily look at every verse in the notes, I did that for you in your own further study if you want to do that on your own, if it helps you. And as we go through those seven points, I will highlight a few key passages along the way in our study on the person of the Holy Spirit. But before we get jump in on those seven points, I want to say this about the Holy Spirit. is The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament routinely is referred to or given the name Spirit, which in Hebrew is also has the meaning of wind or breath. Ruach is the word. And many times it's translated as wind or breath. But in reference to the third person of God, it is translated as spirit. And that's carried over into the New Testament, which was written in Greek. Or in your Greek New Testament, uh, many times the Holy Spirit is referred to with the word pneuma. Pneuma many times also can mean breath or wind. But the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to with the word pneuma, spirit, breath, the breath of God, the spirit of God. And it's an appropriate designation, breath, wind, because it reminds us about the very character of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is like the wind and that he is invisible. He is like the wind and that he is a spirit or he doesn't have a physical body. The Holy Spirit does not have a physical body. One of the most popular religions in America today teaches and believes that the Holy Spirit has a body of physical parts just like we do. That is not true. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. doesn't have a body. Jesus said in Luke 24 that a body does, or a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Luke 24, Jesus said that He defined what a spirit was. So a spirit is invisible like the wind, and also the wind is active. It is dynamic. It is powerful. And you can't see it moving, but you can see the results of it moving. And that is exactly true of the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit. He is invisible. But you can see the results of His work and what He's accomplishing in the world and in the lives of people. So it's an appropriate designation. So that's that Greek word pneuma. And so when you do a study of the Holy Spirit, it's called pneumatology. Study of the Holy Spirit. That's where that word comes from, pneuma. And we use it in English as well. Pneumonia and other English words that have to do with your lungs or your breath or your breathing. So that's the relation there. So let's go ahead and look at biblical pneumatology, the person of the Holy Spirit, and seven key things that the Bible has to say about the third person of the Trinity. And number one is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. This is very important because I said that just about every religion in the world has a view of a spirit, a spirit of God, a spirit being. New Age religion believes in a spirit of God. 
Hinduism believes in a spirit of God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the spirit of God. But all of those views and religions and beliefs say that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but rather the spirit is a force. It's an it. It is not a person. The Holy Spirit is like electricity. It's active. It's a force, but it's not a person. That isn't what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that, or the Scripture makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is a person, has the characteristics, attributes of a person, a rational being. And I just came up with four things to highlight the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. And they are number one: that the Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit has an, it's an intellectual being. Is the Holy Spirit? He can rationalize. He can think. 1 Corinthians 2, 10-11. Actually, that whole chapter is just a great passage on the work of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit having a mind and using His mind because the Holy Spirit is a person. And he says that the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, searches everything. And the word for searches means examines or thinks through or scrutinizes or evaluates. It's an intellectual, rational capacity of the highest order is what the Holy Spirit does and can do. Only a person can do that. He's a person. He doesn't have a body, but He is a person. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And He's talking about the depths of God's mind. No one comprehends or understands the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. There it is. The Holy Spirit has a mind. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit has an infinite mind. The Holy Spirit is a person. Not only does the Holy Spirit as a person have a mind, He also has a will. A person, by definition, has a will. The ability to choose, which we call volition, which we are responsible for our choices and our ability to make choices. Well, the Holy Spirit has a will. He makes choices all the time. I gave you an example. 1 Corinthians 12.11 where it talks about when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit dispenses or gives out different spiritual gifts to different Christians. There are many different spiritual gifts. And God is the one who determines which spiritual gift you will get, how many, what kind. God is the one who sovereignly decides that. And in explaining that in 1 Corinthians 12.11, Paul writes that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, these are gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives to each Christian one as a gift as He wills. The Holy Spirit gives the spiritual gifts to every Christian as He wills, as the Spirit wills, as the Spirit determines, as the Spirit chooses, which tells us the Holy Spirit has a will. He has the ability to choose and decide. I also put a cross-reference there on Acts 16 where the Apostle Paul was going out on his different missionary journeys and then they'd make their plans and they'd say, hey, let's go this direction. And then in Acts 16, two times it says that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from going that direction and the Holy Spirit sent Paul the other way. And then a couple of verses later it said the Spirit of Jesus kept Paul from going that way and He sent him the other way. So you've got the Spirit of God making decisions, intervening exerting His will on the very Apostle Paul in a sovereign way. He has a will. He's a person. So the Holy Spirit has a mind. He has a will. He has emotions. Did you know that? It is not weak to have emotions to express your emotions. Emotions are a gift from God. Emotions actually are a sign that we were made in the very image of God because God is an emotional being. He's a perfectly holy, sinless emotional being as is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has emotions we could refer to many uh, but Ephesians 4.30, where Paul is exhorting Christians to live a holy life, don't compromise, don't be sinful, stay away from the world. And if you do fall into sin, what's going to happen? He says you will grieve the Holy Spirit. So he commands Christians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Literally, do not disappoint the Holy Spirit by making wrong choices. Do not disappoint the Holy Spirit of God. Do not sin against the Holy Spirit and frustrate Him in your life. Do not circumvent what He's trying to do in your life because of your wrong choices. And it's an emotional reaction that the Holy Spirit has. He is grieved. The Holy Spirit can be grieved by Christians because He's an emotional being. So He's a person because He has a mind, will, and emotions. And then finally, uh, the Bible just says that the Holy Spirit is a personal being. It just refers to Him that way with His different attributes and even some of the terminology that is used to talk about and describe the Holy Spirit. Some personal things that the Holy Spirit does that only persons can do. Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is about to go on his first missionary journey. God assembles a missionary team and Paul is working as a pastor in Antioch and God wants to commission Paul to go out on the mission field. And so God speaks and listen to what God says to this congregation. Acts 13.2, God said, well actually it says, the Holy Spirit said. And the text is clear that God is talking. Yet it's the Holy Spirit said. Only a person can say. Only a person can talk. The Holy Spirit can talk. The Holy Spirit said to that congregation set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I, God, have called him or them. Acts 13.2 The Holy Spirit talks. He's a person. What else does the Holy Spirit do as a person? Romans 8.27 Paul's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian and in their prayer life specifically. And he reminds us because our prayers are weak, feeble, finite, sometimes sinful. We need help in our prayer life. And God gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us. In Romans 8.27, Paul says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That is amazing. The Holy Spirit prays to the Father on our behalf. That's awesome. Do you need somebody to pray for you? I need people to pray for me all the time. And I'm blessed. Every time somebody comes up and sincerely says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your family. I'm praying for your life and your ministry. So I praise the Lord. God, I need people praying for me and interceding for me. And not only the saints are doing that, the Holy Spirit of God is praying for and interceding for every person who is a Christian to God the Father. That is awesome. Only a person can pray and intercede. And then John 14. Go Turn to John 14 because I want you to look at this. John 14. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Because every time the Holy Spirit is referred to in the New Testament with pronouns, they are always personal pronouns. In other words, the Holy Spirit is never called an it or that. It's always he, him, personal pronouns. Singular, masculine pronouns. Very specific designation every single time. This abounds in the Gospel of John. Look at John 14. I wanted to highlight actually verses 16 and 17. And just look at all the personal pronouns in those two verses. I circled them in my Bible. Jesus is talking to His 11 disciples. Judas is gone. He's about to depart, die, ascend into heaven. And he says, don't be worried. I'm not going to leave you here alone. I will not leave you orphans. And then in verse 16, he said, I will ask the Father. This is Jesus talking. I will pray to the Father, and the Father will give you another helper. He's going to send somebody else in my place in order that He may be with you forever. There's the first one in verse 16, the capital H-E in my Bible. That is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the Helper, who's going to come replace Jesus in the ministry of the saints. He. Personal pronoun, verse 17. That is the Spirit of truth. That's who He is. The Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive. Because it does not behold Him or know Him. But you know Him. 
Because He, the Spirit, abides with you and He will be in you. See all those personal pronouns in reference to the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is a person. An awesome truth. By the way, one thing I want to highlight in verse 16, very important. Jesus is praying. I will ask the Father. He will pray to the Father. Jesus is not the Father. He was going to pray to the Father. There's a distinction in persons. And the Father will give you another helper. Now, there's two Greek words for the word another. There's another of the same kind and another of a different kind. Another of a different kind is the word heteros, where we get heterodoxy, something that's totally different and foreign. Heteros, used all the time in the New Testament. That's something of a different kind, a different genus, a different makeup, a different category. They're not related. For example, if I said to my son, I'm going to get rid of your bicycle and I will give you another toy. And the another toy I was talking about was I will give you a video game. Another refers to something totally different. Video games, bikes, totally different categories. Not of the same kind, not of the same genus. That's heterodox. Heteros is the Greek word. That's not the word used here. The word is the other word for another in Greek, and it's alos, A-L-L-O-S. It's another of the same kind, another of equal value, another in the same category. And Jesus said, I'm going to leave. The Father is going to send another in the same category, in the same kind as me, which puts the Holy Spirit on the same level of equality as Jesus Himself. The Holy Spirit is God and will fully and accurately represent the Lord Jesus Christ when He left and sends the Holy Spirit in His stead. It's amazing. The specific terminology that He used that is so powerful and helpful in clarifying things. So the Holy Spirit is a person. Number two, what else about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is deity. By deity, I mean He is God in all of His attributes. Infinite, sinless, perfect, holy, sovereign. All those things that are true of God are also true of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. He is part of the triune God. The one God of the universe exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are co-equal and co-eternal with one another and co-equal in glory. And the Holy Spirit Himself is God by virtue of the fact that some of the things I put down there, He has divine titles, the Holy Spirit does. And I wrote many of them down for you. The Spirit of God, one of the most common ones. The Holy Spirit, meaning He is totally sinless. The Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Jesus. The most explicit one is 2 Corinthians 3.17, where two times the Apostle Paul says, the Lord is the Spirit. That's a direct assertion of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one that's not on there I want you to look at. Turn to Acts chapter 5. This is amazing. Acts chapter 5. And this is one of the most direct teachings on the fact that the Holy Spirit is deity or that the Holy Spirit is God along with the Father and the Son. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Early church in Jerusalem. Two prominent people in the early church. They were wealthy. They owned land. They professed to be Christians. Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. They were married. They sold a piece of their property. And what they promised to do before they sold the property, they promised to give the proceeds from their sale to the church. They made a vow before the apostles and before God. We're going to give this amount of money to the church from our proceeds before we sell the land. So they had a piece of property. Verse 2, after they sold the land, look what happened. Uh Uh-oh, Houston, we have a problem. Verse 2. They kept back some of the price for himself, Ananias did. Whoa, I didn't know I was going to make this much money. And he pocketed some thinking, oh, they won't know. They'll stick it a lot. The church will. He did this with his wife's full knowledge. 
So they brought a portion of the sail to church, laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter, head apostle, verse 3, Peter said to, to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's key right there, that phrase. You lied to the Holy Spirit when you made a promise about how much money you were going to give and you kept back some of the price of the land. Verse 4, Peter goes on. While it remained unsold, did, not, did it not remain your own? You didn't have to promise any money. You didn't have to give it to the church. You didn't have to say you were going to do that, but you did. And after it was sold, was it not under your control as to what you were going to do with the money? You made the wrong choice. Why is it that you have con conceived this deed in your heart? Key phrase at the end of verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 3, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, you have lied to God. The Holy Spirit is God. This is what he's saying clearly. The Holy Spirit is deity. So he has divine titles. The Holy Spirit is deity because he has divine attributes. Psalm 139 says he is omnipresent. God, where can I go from your spirit? Wherever I go, you're there. That's the Spirit of God. He is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. Our, he knows our motives. He knows everything. He knows the mind, the infinite mind of the Father. So He has divine attributes. He's deity by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit does divine work. Did you know the Holy Spirit does work that only God can do? I listed several of those. He creates. God is the Creator. Last week we saw that Jesus is the Creator. Job says the Holy Spirit was the Creator. And Bob just read this morning. At the time of creation, in the beginning, of the, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the Holy Spirit of God was there. And then Job specifically tells us that the Spirit of God fashioned everything in the universe. Who created the universe? Was it the Father? Was it the Son? Or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes, that's the answer. They all had a part in creation. Amazing. The Holy Spirit is Creator. He gives life. He inspired the Scripture. He baptizes believers into the body of Christ, the universal invisible body of Christ. He sanctifies believers and helps them become holy. He judges people. We'll see that in a second. And He also brings people back to life. He resurrects. He resurrects. Romans 8.11 says that the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. Well, I thought the Father rose Jesus from the dead. Well, He did. And I thought Jesus raised Himself from the dead, like He said in John chapter 2 and in John chapter 10. Well, that's true. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus raised Himself from the dead. And Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Amazing. The triune God working together in tandem the works of God. And then the last one, He also regenerates. In other words, it is the Holy Spirit of God who transforms an unbeliever into a believer in a moment of time upon their belief in the Gospel. The Holy Spirit regenerates. He brings back to life or He brings to life for the first time. He takes a dead spiritual soul who has no relationship with God and He brings about regeneration or salvation in a moment of time. It is the Holy Spirit working on the hearts of people that accomplishes that. He regenerates. That's what Jesus said in John 3.6. The Holy Spirit of God is the One who works like the wind and He changes people's hearts. You must be born again. You must be saved. And it's the Holy Spirit who does that? How does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word of God or the Bible or the truth of the Gospel message, the, the living Word of God. And then the Holy Spirit takes the truth of the Word of God and He impresses it upon people's conscience and their mind. And He rubs and He works against the conscience of sinners and tries to embed the truth in their soul and even prepares the way for them to respond to the truth of the Gospel. Did you know that none of us could respond to the truth of the Gospel without the work of the Holy Spirit? It would be absolutely impossible. 
Absolutely. How do we know that? Because number one, we are sinful and no man seeks after God on his own. That's what Romans 3 says. No man seeks God. And then even worse than that is 2 Corinthians 4.4 that says that the gospel or Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is the Holy Spirit who must remove satanic blindness from unbelievers before they can get saved. You know, that's very comforting to know because I don't know if you've ever witnessed to people, maybe it's family members and you have given them the gospel over and over and over again incessantly for years and years and years and you just seem like you are getting nowhere and no matter how logical you try to present your case, it's not sinking in. Well, it's not a matter of logic. It is a matter of their sin and also it is a matter of they are blinded by Satan. There's only one thing that can remove the blinders of Satan that prevents people from coming to Christ. It is the truth of the Gospel, God's powerful Word, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Christians need to pray for the salvation of unbelievers. And specifically, we pray that the Holy Spirit works on their conscience with the truth of the Word of God and the Gospel to remove satanic blindness so they can see the Gospel, understand it, and believe and be saved. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit regenerates them and brings them into the family of God. It's awesome. Amazing, the work of the Holy Spirit. He's also deity. In addition to His work, is by virtue of His association. He continually in the New Testament is put on an equal par with God the Father and the Son. And we just saw that in John 14, where Jesus said He will pray to the Father who is God, Jesus Himself who is God, and the Father will send another of the same kind. In that verse, the Spirit is always on an equal par with the Father and the Son. In many of Paul's epistles, he mentions all three of them, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be unto you. That's the God, the triune God of the universe. And we talked about uh, the baptismal formula. That's one of the most specific ones, Matthew 28, 19. When you baptize a new Christian or a Christian who hasn't been baptized, you baptize them in the name of God. The name, singular. What is His name? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons on an equal par with the one name of God. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit is deity by virtue of His association with the Father and the Son. Number three, the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father and the Son. And we've talked about this, and I referred to it earlier, but I just want to highlight it again because people can get confused. Now, if you're mulling over and thinking through these truths about the Trinity and it starts to hurt your brain and you get a little confused, that's a good sign. That means you're thinking. Remember, we said one of the names of God was wonderful, which means incomprehensible, the incomprehensible one, the infinite one. We cannot rationalize God in His totality in our brain. There is mystery. But one thing is clear is that the Holy Spirit is not the Father. He is a distinct person from the Father. One God with the Father, but a distinct person. John 14, 26, Jesus said the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. He makes a distinction between the two persons. So the Spirit is not the Father and the Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus continually made a distinction between Him and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, He talked about another comforter. When the Spirit comes, He will come in My place. Jesus is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. And also in terms of distinction, the Holy Spirit has very distinct and different roles than the Father and the Son. Jesus, His role as God, He was the Savior. He was God who became incarnate. He lets us see what God is literally like in human form. That was the role of Jesus as Savior. The Father is the Creator, the planner of salvation who initiates that plan. And the Son carries it out. And then after the Son leaves, the work or the distinct role of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit comes to finish and accomplish the work of Jesus in the lives of His church and in the lives of His people. And He does it in an invisible way on a very intimate level in our very own lives. He has a distinct role. 
And it's a very personal and intimate one that we're going to see in just a second. So the Holy Spirit, although He is deity and God in equal status with the Father and Son, He is a distinct person. Let's go on to number four. This is rarely talked about, and that is the Holy Spirit fulfills the new covenant. Very important. What is the old covenant? The old covenant was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel when He talked to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the Mosaic Covenant, the theocracy of Israel, and all those laws, and how they are to structure their religion, and how they are to make animal sacrifices to appease the wrath of God temporarily, and keep killing animals over and over and over and over and over again until a greater sacrifice was to come in the future. That is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the greatest sacrifice ever. So the Mosaic Covenant is the Old Covenant. That covenant has been done away or actually fulfilled and has been superseded by the New Covenant. And that came with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came in fulfillment of all the Scriptures of the Old Testament. He did not abolish the Mosaic Covenant. He fulfilled the Mosaic Covenant with all of its prophecies, pictures, types, pointing to a greater one than the Old Testament religious and sacrificial system. And it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and also in the Holy Spirit. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel are two prophets in the Old Testament, 500 years and more than 500 years, 600 years before Jesus came. They predicted specifically of a new covenant. And that's what they called it. That's what Ezekiel called it. So Jeremiah referred to in Jeremiah 31.31. Regarding this new covenant that is coming that will be better than the Mosaic Old Covenant, It will be fulfilled in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah said, Behold, days are coming in the future, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them and and on their heart I will write it. See, that's the distinction. God wrote His law on stones with Moses. In the new covenant, God will write His law on the heart of man, on the conscience of man, on the conscience of a believer. It's internal. That's the emphasis. This newer, higher form of religion in the New Covenant. It's going to be primarily internal instead of external. In addition, for they will all know Me from the least of them to the greatest of them. That's also a distinction and a difference. In the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant, you could join the covenant simply by who you were married to, related to, or born from. You didn't have to make a decision. As a matter of fact, the boys, they were circumcised as infants and automatically included in the Old Covenant, the Old Community. And this prophecy is in the New Testament It's not going to be that way. It's not going to be by association. It's going to be by personal decision. That's what he's referring to. They will all know me. They will all know God on a personal level. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, every person enters into this New Covenant one individual at a time. It doesn't matter if your parents are Christians. You can't get into the New Covenant because your parents are Christians. You have to get there by yourself, by your personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in His Gospel. It is the only way. And when you do and you become a Christian because of your belief in Him, then you will know God intimately and personally. That's the promise of the New Covenant. Another promise of the New Covenant is that God said, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. In the Old Covenant under Mosaic Law, you had to keep killing animals all the time. And every time you slaughtered an animal, it would appease the wrath of God for a little bit, for a week, for a month, for a year. And you had to keep killing animals. and keep Your whole life, you had to keep slaughtering animals. And the blood would be flowing. With the New Covenant, the Greater Covenant, the New Covenant, the ultimate sacrifice would come, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be offered not again and again, but only one time as the perfect, infinite, sinless Lamb of God. 
And when Jesus shed His blood on the cross, that was the one and only sacrifice that never ever needed to be made again for sinful humanity. And it provided forgiveness of sin for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. Sacrifices in the Old Testament with those animals would not do that. They would not cover future ongoing sins. That's why you had to keep killing animals. That's why Jesus' sacrifice is a greater sacrifice. The wonderful promise of the New Testament. And then another truth about the New Covenant, Ezekiel 36, more details. God says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. What spirit is God going to put in us? It's the New Covenant. And I will remove the heart of stone or unbelief from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And look at this. I will put my spirit within you. That is the difference. The promise of the New Covenant is that what you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Gospel, and the moment you get saved, God promised He was going to put the Holy Spirit of God to live inside of you. So if you are a Christian this afternoon, the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the moment you became a Christian, the New Covenant was fulfilled in you and God sent His Spirit to live in you. I will put My very Spirit in you. That is the New Covenant. Old Testament saints... Old Testament believers did not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them on a regular, ongoing, permanent basis. That is a New Testament truth. They were saved. They knew God. But not at the level that we do with the intimacy of the Spirit of God living in the believer. That is the promise of the New Covenant that is fulfilled with Christ's death and resurrection and the indwelling Holy Spirit. An awesome ministry of the Holy Spirit that many times is forgotten. Let's go on to number five. The Holy Spirit convicts sinners. In John 14 through 16, Jesus is talking to His 11 apostles trying to encourage them and prepare them for the fact that He's about to leave. And He's, he's trying to comfort them. And he's, he's also trying to educate them. And He's also reminding them over and over again that He's going to send the Holy Spirit in His place, in His stead to continue the ministry. And the Holy Spirit would comfort them, teach them, lead them into truth, help them write the Scriptures. And another ministry that the Holy Spirit would do is in John 16, and that is that the Holy Spirit would convict sinners. Great verse. John 16, 8. Jesus said, and when He comes, that's the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And ever since God gave the Holy Spirit to the earth in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has had an ongoing ministry with all of humanity, not just Christians. And one of His main ministries is from the time a human is born into this world, the Holy Spirit is working on the conscience of every soul. Rubbing against them. Pricking their conscience. Trying to get them to realize who the true Creator of the universe is and who the true Savior is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He is continually ongoing, convicting sinners about sin. Sin Righteousness, judgment. It's an awesome ministry. And that's why we call, we have the authority, and it's legitimate, to call sinners to repentance. That's what we're supposed to do when we share the gospel. Jesus said to do that. Call sinners to repentance. Well, you can't do that. You can't talk to unbelievers about sin. They don't understand sin. Yeah, they do. The Holy Spirit is invisibly, supernaturally convicting their very conscience about their sin. And they are resisting it. So they know there's an internal struggle that is invisible going on in the unbeliever that we cannot see, but it's a reality and it's going on. There's a struggle of the soul. I know that when, I, when it happened to me. From the time I was 17 to the time I was 19, I was resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I heard the Gospel crystal clear when I was 16 from a friend of mine. And he kept telling me, and he kept telling me. 
And then he'd think I'm warming up to the Gospel. And then he'd, he'd ask me, so do you want to pray to Jesus and ask Him into your... Or no, he'd say, so do you believe what I'm telling you about the Gospel? And I'd say, yeah. Well, do you believe Jesus is God and the Savior? Yeah. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yeah. Do you believe the only way to get your sins forgiven is by committing your life to Jesus Christ? Yeah. Well, are you ready to pray and receive Him to your heart? No. I did that for two years with full knowledge. I knew what he was saying was right. And as I look back, I was resisting it. I did not want to surrender the control of my life. That is pride. That is sin. So he was planting seeds, praying for me, and all this activity going on in my heart, my mind, my soul. He wasn't really aware of it. It was a a civil war in my soul. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit in every believer. So don't be discouraged. The Holy Spirit is working. Even when we get tired and we give up and we get frustrated and we throw in the towel, the Holy Spirit and His Word continue to work in the hearts of people. Never giving up. The Holy Spirit convicts sinners. Number six, the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And I said He indwells believers at the point of salvation. So the moment you've heard the Gospel... The Holy Spirit's been working on your heart, convicting you of your sin. He has removed satanic blindness. He has humbled your pride. The light begins to go on. The Holy Spirit regenerates you, somehow mysteriously using your faith as you place it in the Gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in a moment of time, you are born again, adopted into the family of God. And the first thing that God does to welcome you into His family is He gives you the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit to be with you forever. It's awesome. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them, indwelling them, and it begins at the point of salvation. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you believed, you were sealed with the Spirit of God as He was put inside of you, Christian. Sealed. Very specific word. Seal is God's protection. Seal is God's guarantee that you belong to Him. Seal gives you assurance. The Holy Spirit living in you is why we have assurance that we know God and that we will not lose our salvation because the infinite Creator God of the universe sealed us in the Holy Spirit. Awesome. The Holy Spirit indwells believers at the point of salvation and the Holy Spirit is given as a gift. We don't earn the Holy Spirit. We don't pray for the Holy Spirit at salvation saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to live in me now. It's you believe in the gospel, and after you believe in the gospel and get saved, then the Holy Spirit is given to you as a gift. He's specifically referred to as a gift in Acts 2.38. Peter was evangelizing unbelievers, and he told them at the conclusion of his sermon, repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can't work for the Holy Spirit. You can't beg and plead and conjole God for more of the Holy Spirit. He gives it as a gift. Also, the Holy Spirit, because He lives in you, The Scripture says that we are literally temples of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the very presence of God lived and resided in the tabernacle, which was the tent, and later in the actual building of the temple. That's where the Spirit of God was, in the Holy of Holies. And at one point in Israelite history, he got grieved and he left the temple and he wasn't there anymore. But he returned 600 years later at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he returned to live in a new temple, a new structure, a new tabernacle. And that is the very heart of every person who believes in the Gospel. So every Christian is literally a walking, living temple of Almighty God. The Creator of the universe lives inside of you, Christian. Isn't that amazing? And you take the Holy Spirit of God everywhere you go. That's why you have to be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. So if you have the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you and you are a temple, 
And you need to keep your temple holy and pure because your special guest is the Holy Spirit who lives there. Awesome. So the Holy Spirit indwells believers. And then finally, number seven. Not only does He indwell believers, that begins at salvation. Oh, one other thing I forgot to say about the seal is the Holy Spirit begins to live in you at salvation, but He stays in you permanently in this life. The Holy Spirit will never leave you in this life. That's a promise from Jesus. Hebrews 13 and other places. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit is always there. We are sealed in Him. That's a permanent seal and also a pledge. Number seven, the Holy Spirit empowers believers for many things. This is the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit and we give so little thought and attention to it, yet the Holy Spirit of God, out of the Trinity, the most active of the persons of the Trinity, the most active in our daily lives in this life is the Holy Spirit of God. When was the last time we thought about that? He is the most active. I couldn't even list all the things the Holy Spirit of God is doing for believers right now in their life. I'll just highlight a couple. The Holy Spirit empowers us to share the Gospel, to witness to others with our words and with our life. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised them, wait for the whole gift of the Holy Spirit. After you get saved, God will send you the Holy Spirit. And He will be the power that enables you to share the Gospel. In Jerusalem... Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world to empower believers. Because sharing the gospel can be a very scary thing, can it? It can be timid and afraid. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit. What else does He do? The Holy Spirit provides intimacy with God. We have no relationship with God without the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us, empowers us, and makes direct communication with the infinite God of the universe possible. We could have intimacy with the Creator of the universe. We can have intimacy, personal relationship with the God of the universe. No other religion talks that way, by the way. I have a personal relationship with the Almighty God of the universe. Islam does not believe that. You don't have this intimate, cherished, personal relationship with the Creator that according to Paul, we can call Abba, Daddy, Father. The deists didn't believe that, like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin, who believed in God, but they had a deist view of God. That means that they believed He was Creator and He was a person, but after He created the world, He left us on our own and had nothing to do with us. There wasn't this intimate, ongoing, day-to-day, continual communion in a personal way with God. But the Holy Spirit makes that possible. God is not only transcendent, holy other, He is also imminent, immediately available and appropriate for us. Amazing. uh, The Holy Spirit also empowers us to help edify the church because the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts at the time that we are saved. And not only that, He helps us use our gifts to do them effectively in the local church to help grow the body of Christ. He empowers us to serve. You can't do service in a true way that pleases God without the help and the energy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also empowers us to walk in obedience. We cannot walk in obedience on our own. The Apostle Paul could not walk in obedience on his own. That's his testimony in Romans 7. 14 through 25, just key phrases in there. He is an apostle at the height of his ministry and his biography was, he said, that nothing good dwells in me, in and of myself. As a matter of fact, sin lives in me. The, the things I know I should do right, sometimes I don't do them. The things that I know I should do, I don't do and I neglect them. And he was frustrated with himself as a Christian. That's why he concluded and said, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who is going to help me? And then chapter 8, the next chapter, is all about the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps Paul the sinner live 
a successful Christian life to walk in obedience. It is only through the indwelling Holy Spirit that we can walk in obedience and please God. We can't do it on our own. That's why in Galatians 5.16, similar passage, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. This is a command. Walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Be sensitive to how He prompts you and leads you. He's working on your conscience. Submit to that. Be careful. Regard that. Walk by the Holy Spirit. And if you do, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience. And I want to conclude with this. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Because this is so important. Because this is pertinent to every single one of us. If you are a Christian, you want to please God, right? And you want to be obedient to Him. But how do I do that? Well, according to Paul, the key is walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Um, look at verse... If you got Galatians 5 there. He says you have a choice. It's a choice. Are you going to submit to the Holy Spirit and Scripture or not? Because you have two choices. You can either do sinful things or things that please God. Deeds of the flesh, deeds of the Spirit. Verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. What are they? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Look at those in verse 20, the common denominator there. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Does that ever go on in your Christian home? At any level or in any relationship you have with another Christian? Some of you are smiling because you're honest. Our house too. Those are the deeds of the flesh. We are all susceptible to these kinds of sins. Verse 21, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you. Then he says, those are the deeds of the flesh. Then verse 22, there's an alternative to choose. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Obey the Spirit. Do what the Holy Spirit of God wants you to do in accordance with Scripture. And if you do, you will manifest these following traits and characteristics in your life. These are attitudes you will have in your life. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Joy. Peace. Joy and peace, they go together. If you have anxiety, incessant anxiety, depression in your life, that's the opposite of joy and peace. You're missing a fruit of the Spirit. Patience. You fly off the handle with your kids. You're not walking in the Spirit. Kindness. You're not talking kindly to your spouse. You're not walking in the Spirit. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. You're responding in the wrong way. Not in a gentle manner. You're not walking in the Spirit. Self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. And the only way we can do those things and have those attributes and characteristics in our life on a regular basis is in submission to the Holy Spirit. And only Christians actually can manifest these things in a true and ongoing way because they have the Holy Spirit living inside them as their resource. It's an amazing ministry that the Holy Spirit of God has in our life as Christians. And we need to be mindful of Him, thankful to Him. And one of the special ways we can do that today is by having communion, uh, which I want to lead us in now in just a moment. But if you could just bow your head and we'll pray to the Lord in thanksgiving for His Word. Father, we do thank You for the Lord's Day, a time that You deliberately planned that we set aside to make a priority to focus on You. To be encouraged by the saints to learn from Your Word, to worship You. So we thank You for that great respite from the daily busy things and routines of life. God, thank You for the truth of Your Word.
And we thank You for the Holy Spirit and His ministry to us, for those who know Jesus Christ in so many different ways. The joy He brings, the security and assurance that He gives, the fact that He's the ongoing teacher and counselor and comforter. All these blessings are a result of His ministry. So God, may we be more mindful of the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we would seek to please Him in all that we do as we seek to be obedient and walk in the fruits of the Spirit. And we just commit this morning to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The message you've just heard was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. 30 0009.